Good morning. As Kevin said, my name is Aaron Cook, and I'm a member at uh, Church of the Incarnation, your sister church in Harrisonburg. And I bring greetings from Church of the Incarnation this morning. We love you. We pray for you guys regularly. And most of you who uh, used to worship with us, we miss you. So thank you uh, for, for having me here today. Also, on a personal note, I want to thank you all for praying for me and my family and helping us out. Uh, went through a medical episode in December that uh, is working out fine. I hope that I go to my neurologist this Tuesday, and I hope that he tells me that I'm free to go and sin no more um, with a clean bill of health. And that's what I'm praying for and hoping for. And I uh, appreciate your prayers uh, during this time. One other thing, Paula wanted to be here today, but she is uh, in Pennsylvania cleaning up from a wedding yesterday. And so um, she, she had to stay up there and was unable to come back with me. Um, anyway, she wishes she was here with, the, with you all today. As we've been traveling through Lent, as we've been tra- the, the book of Luke, we've been traveling with Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem. Way back in the middle of chapter 9 when we started this series, it says that when, da- when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And since that time, he's been teaching in synagogues, he's been picking up steam, gathering crowds. Uh, in chapter 13, verse 22, it says he went through a series of neighboring towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. All along the way, we've seen him eating and feasting and partying with people in their homes and confronting the Pharisees and teaching his disciples. And today, he finally arrives in Jerusalem. Now, when, I, when we read these stories of like the triumphal entry, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time picturing it. Um, I've got these kind of flammograph memories from my days as a child, and Sunday school has that sort of texture. Um, for those of you who are too young to remember flammographs, it's, it was our version of YouTube. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and for, for um, some of us, you know, the, the images from the Jesus movie that were, I guess, well done, but just a little bit otherworldly, just hard to imagine that happening here and how and those being real people in the crowd. So sometimes what I try to do when I when I approach a, a story like this is I try to think about what would that look like today? So imagine with me that we find out that the President of the United States is going to be driving his motorcades coming through on 33 heading from Harrisonburg toward Elkton. Maybe it's the just in time for a field day here in Elkton. What would that look like? First of all, a lot of people would show up who normally wouldn't show up, right? I mean, people from Stanton and, and Dayton and Harrisonburg might show up. Um, people would line acro- along 33 just to get a peek at the motorcade. Um, as far as I know, no president has ever come, no sitting president has ever come to Elkton. President Nixon came to Harrisonburg. I think it's about as close as, as we got. Um, you know, of course, there's going to be lots of ardent supporters showing up with their hats and their buttons and their signs. And... Um, pressing to get close to the president. Um, some people were just curious, want to show up just to kind of see what was going on. They kind of stand back and act like they really weren't interested, but they'd be there. Um, of course, there'd be the people who don't like the president. They'd have signs and shirts and hats and megaphones of their own uh, to get their message out. And uh, probably most of us would just get out of town to avoid the mess, right? <laughs> now imagine the motorcades coming down 33, and as they go past Dick Myers they see this bright red Mustang in the parking lot, convertible. And the president sees it and he says, wait a minute, stop. I want to I ride in that. So 
Somebody gets out of the car, goes into Dick Myers, and says, I need the keys to this red Mustang. And they say, well, why do you need the keys? And he says, well, the president needs it. Of course, they'd throw the keys to him. They'd let the, uh, they'd let the car go. And suddenly, um, the president's going to be in the parade, not just passing through. The news spreads. Ardent supporters become more ardent. The protesters get ready. Suddenly, candy-throwing fire trucks are no longer the biggest thing in town. <laughs> so when I think about something like that, I think, yeah, this, this, this could happen. Maybe there wouldn't be palm branches or spreading clothes on the ground. But, um, you know, this is not an unrealistic event. So back to Jerusalem. You know, and this is, in ways, a, a bigger deal for these folks than the president showing up. This is, Jerusalem is their Washington, D.C., and Rome is their Moscow. And Rome had been occupying Washington, D.C. for a long time, Jerusalem for a long time. So when Kevin asked me to speak today, I, what I did was I just started praying through this passage and just sitting with this passage several different times, just wanting it to speak to me. What's the challenge that this passage gives me? And I actually found three. They may actually be unrelated uh, to one another. But there are three characters in this, in this passage that, um, that challenge me. And so I hope at least one of them will challenge you here this morning. The first character that challenges me is the Colts owner. Not, not the Indianapolis Colts. Colts. This cult in Bethany or Bethphagy. That's how you pronounce it. I, I YouTubed it, yeah. Bethphagy. Um, um, that's right. So, um, so this colt's tied up, and the, the passage says that Jesus tells his disciples to go get the colt that's tied up. When, and when you, when you find it, if somebody asks you what you need it for, you say, the Lord needs it. Now, if you read the commentaries, there's speculation as to whether this was prearranged by Jesus, because surely it wasn't like he was stealing it, right? Um, or did the, did the owner know about it? Did he know Jesus, what was going on? Well, keep in mind, this is Bethany. Bethany is the place where Lazarus was raised from the dead. Bethany was a place that he visited often because he had friends there. In fact, Matthew puts, at this point, uh, a big meal at the home of Simon the leper, Simon the former leper, um, in Bethany as Jesus was approaching Jerusalem. So Jesus was well known here. So even if the, even if the cult wasn't pre- um, it was somebody who knew who Jesus was. There's been a, a story earlier in this series that has kind of stuck with me, almost haunted me throughout Lent. And that was the story of the rich fool. Remember the story about the man who um, had barns and was doing well, and he went out and he tore down his barns and he built bigger barns? In chapter 12, the way that story ends up has just kind of, like I said, been sticking with me. It says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, but is not towards God. And we've, we talked about it in our small group, and I've been thinking about it since. What does this phrase, rich toward God, mean? What is it ta- what's it talking about? I think the owner of this cult was rich towards God. You know, he had no guarantee the colt was coming back. He had no idea he was going to come back not injured, dinged up a little bit. Maybe when a colt goes off the lot, it uses, loses half its value. I don't know. <laughs> there's, this, there's this kind of 
big deal made in the passage that it was a cult that had never been written on. Maybe it was of great value to this man. But the Lord needed it, so he let it This idea of being generous is all throughout the New Testament and all throughout Jesus' ministry. We need to learn to hold our possessions with open hands toward Christ. And I see the cult's owner doing that. But how can we give to Jesus? Is this a tithing message? No, it's not a tithing message. Okay. Um, Jesus in Matthew 25 tells us that when we give food to the hungry, when we give drink to those who are thirsty, when we welcome the refugee, when we clothe the naked, when we visit somebody who's sick, when we visit somebody who's in prison, when we do anything for those who are at the lowest end of the socioeconomic ladder, we're doing it for Christ. So I ask myself, what do I treasure? What do I hold on to? What am I willing to give away freely? If someone is in need, do I offer up what I have as freely as the colt's owner gave up his colt for Christ? So the first character, when I look at the colt's owner, I'm challenged to be generous, generous toward others and rich toward Christ. The second character in this passage that has really kind of stuck with me is, is the Pharisee in verse 39. Now, before we start talking about this, the problem with, with Pharisees in the New Testament is this. We see them as the villain. Because um, it's always you know, Jesus versus the Pharisees. The Pharisees have to be bad. Well, to read it this properly and to read all of the Gospels properly, you've got to reimagine that. The Pharisees are the keepers of orthodoxy. They are the evangelical elite. They're the good guys. They're the right guys. If there's anybody in the crowd we're certain is going to heaven, it's that guy. So like in this room, it's the, it's the guy with the collar and the stole on. Right? It's Kevin, right? That, that we know has it. It's the rest of the people in this crowd we're kind of concerned about. But we know, you know, Kevin, Kevin's in, right? Well, that's the Pharisees. That's the perception we need to have as we look at this story. The people that, that, are, the people that are right, that are righteous, um, is, is, is what we should be thinking about. So what did the Pharisees say? And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. When N.T. Wright translates this verse, he says, Tell your disciples to stop that talking about the, the praise and the palm branches and the spreading the cloaks on the ground. And the reason that's been haunting me is that many of us, like, like me, many of us in this room, have come to Anglicanism and have consciously decided that this is a very rich and meaningful way to worship. And there's probably some of us in this room who have really strongly held theologically beliefs that are pretty precise, and, and, and we tend to know that our viewpoints are probably pretty correct. We know that there's a lot of Christians out there doing it wrong. Is this, is this being recorded? Is it going on the internet? Yeah, we can edit out. Okay, I'll skip that story from yesterday. Okay. Um, okay, here's the story. So, Grace uh, attends a college. I'm not going to say where, because it's on the internet, right? Um, and, and while she's there, she's attending this church. It's, it's a kind of a non-denominational church that, that you've all probably attended at one point or another. That's that sort of a church. And Grace was raised in the Anglican church, and communion is a very rich time for, for her, as it is for many of us. Well, this particular church does communion occasionally. Um, and so 
there was a Sunday, and, and, she, and she'd always comment, you know, I really enjoy my church, but we, we never have communion. One Sunday she shows up to worship, and in front of the, in front of the uh, congregation was a table with a, with a white cloth over, over the elements. And, um, the, pa- the pastor announced that today we're going to have communion at the end of the service. She was excited. Well, they, they sang their songs, they passed the offering, they had the sermon. At the end of the sermon, the pastor looks at his watch and says, oh, that, that went a little long, I'm sorry about that, we'll just do communion next week. And the, the, the gasps in this room is what, is what happened to Grace, um, my daughter. And, um, yeah, I mean, we, I was a journalist. I go visit my, my home church. And, okay, I'll skip that. Okay. Um, you know, we've all been to church. We've all been to churches that are different. Pentecostals in full worship. You know, mega church services that seem like concerts. Um, you know, there's this street preacher at Court Square every Wednesday. And sometimes I walk by and like, he's doing it wrong. But what challenged me is, I'm, am I so set in my ways, my liturgical ways, my theological ways, that I cannot recognize Christ when he shows up among other people? When his spirit is at work in other ways of worship, in other ways of thinking about his work in the world, am I too quick to be critical so that I don't even see Jesus when he arrives at Jerusalem? So that's the Pharisee. The Pharisee challenges me and my quickness to be critical. The third character that challenges me is actually a group of characters, but I'm going to give them the name Cleopas. In a couple chapters in Luke chapter 24, we see uh, there's another story. I'm going to read a few verses. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So Bethany and Bethphage are uh, west of Jerusalem. Emmaus is east of Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went to them, went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened? There in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And it goes on and on and on. And then it says, Where is it? In verse 21, he tells about what happened that week, and he was condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one who would. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So this is the day Jesus rose from the dead, and he runs into this guy named Cleopas. And I think Cleopas was there on Palm Sunday. I think Cleopas was in the crowd. He was excited. He was certain that this was going to be the week that Rome was toppled, that Rome was run out of town. We had hoped that, Jesus, that he was the one, and now he's dead. This week was a total failure. I'm challenged by Cleopas by thinking, how do I measure success in the kingdom? You know, we know how to measure success on the basketball court or in our March Madness brackets. You know, we look at the scoreboard. We know how to measure success at work. Sometimes it's numbers or profits or results. But how do we measure success in life? 
How do we measure success in the kingdom? How do we measure success in the church? When Jesus calls us to do something and we do it, there's no guarantee it will produce a win or numbers or success in the eyes of the world. Does that mean the whole thing was a big mistake? Suppose you were to take Matthew 25 seriously and you were to invest time into um, someone who's currently in prison. He's going to get out in a year or two. You visit him regularly. Suppose he comes to faith. He gets out, goes to seminary, becomes the next Billy Graham. That would be an awesome story, a big success. Looking back, we'd say that was an excellent use of your time. Or suppose he comes to faith. He gets out, goes back on heroin, and ends up back in prison within six months. Does that mean the time you invested was a huge waste and a big mistake? Kevin mentioned um, that we were involved with a, with a church plant called Christ the King. And a number of you were there as well. Um, that church lasted, depending on how you count it, five, six, seven years before it collapsed. Just by just about any metric, it was a failure. So does that mean it was a mistake to have planted the church in the first place? We had hoped, like Cleopas said, we had hoped for something quite different than how it turned out. It would be very easy to look back and say, we had hoped, and it was a failure. But I'm reminded of Paul in 1 Corinthians when he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. We are called to do what we are called to do. Jesus said in another place in Luke, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and nests in its branches. The end of the story is never the end of the story. Like the, seeds that put, like the seed that's put in the ground and dies, and it rises again to new life, much later, it's much later that are able to, to rest in its branches. And like Jesus, who died and was buried before he rose again, so too the work we do for God's kingdom cannot be measured in short-term results or even visible results that we can see. Like Jesus and with Jesus, we are on a journey. We cannot see very far in front of us. When we embark on kingdom work, from planting churches to loving our neighbor to feeding the poor, we need to set aside our preconceived notions of what success looks like. We need to take not just the long game, but a totally different metric. Were we loving? Were we obedient? Were we faithful? Did we truly trust God to produce his outcome and not ours? Like Cleopas needed to open his eyes, I need to open my heart to be faithful, to let go of the results, to let, to let go of my criteria, criteria of what is success, and just live out what I'm called to do. So this week, as Jesus arrives to meet you, and as we walk with him to the cross, I invite you to be challenged with me to be more generous with what I hold in my hands, less generous with my criticism, and to take the long view that when I measure the success of our work in God's kingdom, I'm using God's metrics. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.